Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. As we open up the scriptures, we're going to be back in Hebrews chapter 13 today. Uh, It's going to be a Father's Day message in the sense that I'm going to do a lot of application for dads, but it's going to apply to all of us. And so we're talking about courageous living. Uh, I just hope that you'll open your heart to what God has for us. And so let's pray. Ask Him to do a miracle. Father, we come before you, and uh, we believe you still do miracles. They're sometimes small and sometimes huge, and I don't know what you want to do today, but I pray you do something. Do something that's not a religious gathering, that's not just us going through some rituals here, but will you show up, will you be so ever-present that you're having a continual conversation with each of our hearts, whether we're watching in a living room or at a Starbucks or sitting in this room, uh, that you would be evidently present and moving in our midst. Change us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. What's the most courageous thing you've ever done? Think about that, and maybe it was words that you spoke in a moment where you had to be bold, or maybe it was, maybe you rescued your kid out of a river, like I don't know what you've done in your life. Some of you have jumped out of airplanes and served in the military, and some of you are police officers, and every day when you leave, you never know what's going to happen. There are different things that happen, and when I say the word courage, different people have thoughts that pop into their head, risk and danger and fear. Some of you think of daredevil type things. This week on social media, I saw a daredevil. His name is Nathan Pauline. He's a French daredevil, and he was walking on a slack line. I think we brought the video. Yep, there's a video. Slack line, like a tightrope-ish type thing, but not tight. There you go. He's in Rio de Janeiro there. Uh, That slack line is 264 feet above ground, and between two mountains, you can see him walking across it there. Oh, yeah, not as tight of a rope as you would like that to be, I don't think. And they said that it took him about 30 minutes to make that 500-meter walk, so just over a quarter mile. He stopped and he sat down on the rope. He laid down on the Can you imagine driving by and the guy's laying on the rope? And so I started looking into this. I'm like, who does this? Why would they do such a thing? And one article I read, the first line said, Nathan Pauline, French daredevil, makes walk on first attempt, which I thought... He wasn't wearing a helmet. There's no net. There is no second attempt. So I guess you'd call that courageous because there's great risk involved and there's danger that's there. Some people, when you think of courage, you think of heroes. And so, you know, we've often talked about in the American culture, uh, 9-11 and what took place that day. I was having lunch with our, uh, several people from our staff a couple weeks ago and getting to know some of them. Some of them are newer. Our student pastor is newer to our church. If you haven't met him yet, great guy, loves Jesus. His name is Pastor DJ. And Pastor DJ was telling me that his dad was actually in the first tower on September 11th when that plane crashed into the building. And his office is on the 78th floor. And I said, we've got to have your dad come and share some of what that was like, like on an anniversary of 9-11 or something. And he started to tell me the story. He said, through divine circumstances, and, and we won't get into all the details of that story today, but he wasn't on the 78th floor when the plane crashed into the building. He was actually on the 43rd floor, which is where the cafeteria is. Had a meeting canceled, and he and some of his friends went to the 43rd floor. And then he sent me an article uh, that his dad had talked about a lots of his experience in the article, and he said that when the building began to bend, think about that, because in the building, he didn't know a plane had crashed into it. So when the building began to bend, he grabbed a table. That's not going to do you any good, just so you know. But he said, you want to do something in a moment like that. And so he said, then I got down on my knees and I began to pray. I prayed, God, protect us. God, guide me. And God, use me. And they went to the stairwell to get out of this building, and God used them uh, to help different folks. There was one woman that was having a panic attack. Somebody else appeared to be asthma. He didn't know medically exactly what was happening, but hyperventilating, and and God was using them in that. And he said when they got to the 14th floor, they stopped everybody that was coming down and trying to get out of the building because there were people that were coming up. Some of you have seen this picture before. That's a fireman. The person in the purple shirt is actually Pastor DJ's dad. And he talked about seeing this guy. I want to read you an exact quote from the article that I read uh, where DJ's dad, his name is Guy Yasika. He says this, But here we were, 14 floors to our rescue. They're headed down. And him was 66 plus floors to his destination. The fireman's name is Mike Kehoe. They were headed to the 93rd floor. Uh, The 93rd floor is where the plane went into the building between 93 and 99. And he was going there to find survivors. Here's what Pastor DJ's dad said. His face will always remain in my dreams, his family members in my prayers. He was the bravest man I ever saw. And for him, courage was being a hero, going in and being willing to sacrifice your life to save other people. 
Now, what about you? What's the most courageous thing you've ever done? And there are a lot of stories in our church, just so you know. We've got people that have been Delta Force, Marines, Army, uh, that have been willing to risk your life and battle. There are some of you parents, you know, we've got one elder who's given his kidney to another elder in our church right now. Like, there's different acts of sacrifice and courage that different people have done, and honorable people deserve to be honored. But I want to challenge you today that one of the most courageous things that anyone can ever do is be a father. And I don't mean be a father like you oftentimes see in the movies, by the way. Passive guy who usually doesn't guide his family and protect his family like a shepherd, but causes problems, and then like the kids have to fix them. That's how media portrays fathers. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible gives a different challenge, a different calling, and I want to challenge you with that today. And like I said, today's message is not just for dads, but I'm going to tailor the application for dads. Today we're talking about living a courageous life. I've titled today's message, The Cause of Courageous Living. Here's the deal, Dad. You, if you step out and do this, what you've been called to do, commanded to do, you're not going to get Medal of Honor. You're probably not going to go viral for being, you know, so courageous on some YouTube video. Probably won't even get your picture in a magazine. But you could have an eternal impact. You could impact this world for generations to come with generational curses that are made and broken based on how you do as a father. So it's a big deal. If you got your Bibles, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13 today. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Uh, we've been in Hebrews all year. Uh, the summary of Hebrews is that God speaks in many ways throughout many days, and He's speaking today through His Son, Jesus. Jesus is greater, greater than, and that's the title of our series, but in the book we've seen greater than angels, greater than Moses, greater than creation, greater than all glory, greater than all power. He is our great high priest. He is the reason because of his once for all great sacrifice that you and I can boldly approach our heavenly father whenever we want. Amen? Not once a year, not one time by one person that we trust them to go in and make a sacrifice for us. Jesus made the sacrifice for us. We can always go to our Heavenly Father. John chapter 1, verse 12, everybody who's believed on His name, He's given the right to be called children of God. And so if you're in God's family, you've got access to your Father. Amen? Come on, y'all can interact. Just you know, ladies, you can interact today. So you got to help me out here. This is going to be a real dull sermon, I promise. <laughs> Jesus gives us access. Amen? He is the sacrifice, and then he tells us some things he wants us to know. One, you don't drift toward God, you drift away from him. And when God speaks to you, you need to respond to him or your heart gets more callous. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts like the Israelites did and then wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Respond to him. Respond to him by faith. Faith, we're told in Hebrews chapter 11, what that is. It's evidence of things hoped for. It's an assurance of things you haven't seen. They are true. You know they're true. You just haven't fully experienced them yet. But you put your faith, your trust in those things. That's to live that out. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to spend all summer in Hebrews chapter 11. We skimmed over it, and we just talked about what faith is. We didn't talk about all the characters. It's a bunch of people that show you you can keep going in the faith. You might get your head cut off, or you might be greatly rewarded on this earth. We don't know which was going to happen, but just follow them. Because either way, it's worth it. And you can do it. Run this race. You each have our own race. You don't run alone. Follow him. And then we get to chapter 13, and it can feel like this random smattering of just topics that are thrown at us. It's not. It's all about in light of everything that we talked about, the greatness of Jesus, the call of living by faith, what does it look like to live this stuff out? That's Hebrews chapter 13. He tells us that in chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Here's our context. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken. In this world that gets shaken all the time, we're part of a kingdom that can't be shaken. Amen? Amen. And let us, so not just individually, but let all of us, offer to God acceptable worship. But we don't go to a, a tent of meeting anymore. We don't come to a tabernacle. We don't need religious rituals. Jesus has offered the sacrifice. So what does it look like to offer worship to him? That's chapter 13 to love one another with brotherly love, to show hospitality. In fact, even in our sex lives, that's actually worship we talked about last week. What? Yeah, listen to last week. We don't have an hour to review. And today, our money. Look at what it says here. Oftentimes, money and sex are put together in the Bible. They have the same temptations to take shortcuts, to use them different than the way that God intended. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Free is said, 
I will never leave you or forsake you. Oh, that's an interesting thing to put with being free from the love of money. So, in light of that, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? And so, in this consumeristic age of consumption, it takes incredible courage to live a life of contentment. And in this time of all the likes and follows and shares, to be free from the fear of man? This passage isn't about money. It's about courageous living. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And Dad, it's especially important for you because you're especially important, and I want you to know that. You not only share a title with God, how you live, dads, whether you're a crappy dad or you're an amazing dad, will shape how your kids view God. When they think of, when, that, when some pastor tells them someday, our Father who art in heaven, you're a child of God, you've been adapted into God's family, you relate to him as your father, they're going to think of you. Whether you did well or did poorly, they're going to think of you. That's a huge weight. And the Bible says you have a unique role in discipling your kids. It doesn't say parents are responsible for this, to be real clear. This isn't negative about moms. You just have a different role than dad. It's not negative about the church, but the church has a different role than dad. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, it's the Greek word for the male parent is what starts. Fathers. Fathers. What? what? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, which I praise God doesn't mean don't be sarcastic to them. It doesn't mean don't tease them. I, I'm very thankful for that as well. I remember one time, uh, right after the pandemic, we're sitting on the parking lot of the church. We're doing outdoor services. Pastor Dave was preaching on the armor of God. So we were in Ephesians chapter 6, but the last part, and one of my kids had to go to the bathroom. Now, to go to the bathroom, the way we had set it up wasn't the best thought out, is you had to walk past everybody, and then you walked up onto the sidewalk next to the building. Everybody, so everybody's watching you the whole time, like during the sermon. Well, they had to go, or are they just leaving? Were they bored? What happened in this moment? They're not paying attention to the sermon. So my daughter says, can I go to the bathroom? I said, no. <laughs> Pastor's kid grabs a Bible verse. Ephesians 6, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. She points to it. I said, oh, honey, context, context, context. <laughs> Read the last part of the verse. It tells you how you provoke your children to anger. But bring them up in the training, discipline of the Lord. The way that you provoke your children to anger, fathers, is by not doing that. It's by not showing them through your life, through your words, even when you screw up and you turn to your father for forgiveness, you're showing them who the Lord is. You provoke them to anger, frustration. You could use the Greek word there for frustration by not doing that for them. You've got a huge role, dads. And so, one of the ways you do that is by living courageously in this world. It takes incredible courage in a world of consumerism to live a contented life. But courageous living actually overflows from a contented life. That's our first point. Courageous living actually overflows from a contented life life. Go back to the passage in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, and we'll underline a couple key parts here on the screen for you. It says, keep your life free from the love of money. Okay, so there's a freedom from that we're looking for. And be content, so there's our command, with what you have. Okay, what is that then? Because you don't know what I have. Do you know what I have? How do you know what I have? With what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So, and in light of verse 5, so we can confidently, there's a courageous word, say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. More courage. What can man do to me? And so what a lot of people do is they take this and they talk about money from this passage. And people have a lot to say about money. One of the things I found that's really interesting about Christians is however they live their lives, they tell you that's what the Bible says about money. <laughs> Isn't that convenient? It's like, you know what pastors do? There's different styles of preaching. Some preach topical messages, some tell a lot of stories, some preach exegetical messages where you take a, a book and go verse by verse and they all say that's the way to preach the Bible. <laughs> but if you look at Jesus, sometimes he tells a story and sometimes he takes the scroll out and preaches from Isaiah, like he does all these different things. And you know what happens with people with money, just all Christians? Like if you're a minimalist, you'll talk about like what you should do is just whatever you need, then you, you take that, but then everything else, you just should give it away. It'll bring you joy. It just gives you joy to get rid of things. And they say that's the Bible way. 
And then there's some people that are preppers and they'll like read the Joseph story and how he stored up everything for seven years. And when there was a famine, he was able to bless everybody. And then it's like, that's the way. And then some of you, your job is to be a financial advisor or a wealth manager. And you're like, well, if you don't, you see all the investment advice and even as the ant stores up. And so you got, and you're going through all this. The Bible talks about all these different things. But do you know that the Bible actually says that money is morally neutral? A lot of people will misquote 1 Timothy chapter 6 and say that money is the root of all evil. It's a root of all kinds of evil is actually what that passage says. And what it's actually warning you of is the same thing this passage is, is that it can be a trap. And what it does is actually reveals your heart. This passage is not about money. This passage is about your heart. Look at what it says. It doesn't talk about money. It's talking about the love of money. Keep your heart free from the love of money. Oh, so what we do with our money is actually a revealing of our hearts. Now, I could preach to you a Father's Day message where I go, all right, we'll take a break from Hebrews. I'm going to preach to you from Matthew. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And so I do an intro in the message about what's important in life and then go, Jesus says what's important is to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength. So you need to pray and read your Bibles and your kids should see you worshiping. It'd be a good message. It'd be encouraging. It'd probably be beneficial to our church. This passage is way more nitty-gritty because what it's saying is if you're going to say you love God, show me your checkbook. Let's see. Let's see if you… Well, Pastor, you're not going to see my checkbook. That's private. Well, we're talking about spiritual stuff here. And uh, what Jesus says here is that your, your, your… or what the author of Hebrews says here is that your money actually reveals where your heart is. You've got to be free from the love of money if you're going to live this life of contentment. Be free from the love of money and be content. Now, that's crazy in this consumeristic world if you think about that command. See, for them in Hebrews, what was taking place? You go back to chapter 10 and you see that some of them had lost their houses because they visited other Christians in prison. So they were doing, verses 1 through 3, brotherly love, hospitality, and because of their stand for Christ, they lost their homes, and it says they did it with joy. But now they're facing increased persecution, more tension. They know there might be a financial cost for following Jesus, and so the author of Hebrews is saying to them, be free from the love of money. Don't let that pull you away from Jesus. You're supposed to keep your eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of your faith. The only way you can do that is through a contented life interesting. And then for us, most of us aren't going to, you know, go visit another Christian, you show up at this meeting, whatever. There's not going to be a financial cost to you for doing that. Most of There used to be a benefit in our society. That's gone, praise God. But now, there's not a cost. It's just, it is. So, what's the problem for us? If we still have that picture of the fireman coming up, I'd love you to put that back up. Mike Kehoe is the fireman that's there. If you'll notice in the picture, uh, there's a number on the front of his helmet. The reporter for the Mirror magazine um, shows, tells more in the article about the man that was in that picture. And Pastor DJ had sent me that article, and I clicked on it, started reading. I thought it was really interesting. Uh, he shared, because I asked him, I said, do you know what happened? You know, your dad said the bravest man he's ever looked at. Do you know what happened with that man? He's going to the 93rd floor. And what happens is the reporter saw that helmet number, went to his station in Manhattan, and he said, when he got there, he said to some of the other firemen that were there, I'm here to pay my condolences to your colleague who died in the first tower. And they said, died? He's here. And they introduced him to the Mike Kehoe, who was there at the time. And he said he wanted to meet him as a hero then, talk to him. The article that was in Mirror Magazine uh, there was written a few years later. And Mike tells the story of how they got out. Again, crazy story, not the one that I'm going to tell today, but what ended up happening, the summary of it is, is that his, his colleague, who was the senior uh, man on the engine at that point, his name was Roy Chelson, actually said to him, we need to get out of this building, and they, got, they literally got out from the 93rd floor all the way out of the building within seconds of the whole thing crashing down. Crazy story. So we get out, but then what happened was that Roy, a few years later, had a blood cancer, and he died. And Mike said that the family believes that it's tied to the, the elements that he was exposed to at Ground Zero. Health experts have said there are over 2,500 different contaminants in the air, and the family believes that's how he got this blood cancer. And so Mike said, every time I go to the doctor, I'm asking them, because of the exposure that I've had to these things, is this, is this going to happen to me? And sometimes they try to explain stuff away, and sometimes they talk about the possibilities, but, but Mike talks about that. Now think about that, 2,500 contaminants? 
If you thought you were exposed to something really dangerous and you went to your doctor and then they told you, you know what, um, you have a heart condition and there are certain things that if you do them, they're deadly for you. You wouldn't do them, would you? You'd be conscious of those things. And no offense to the doctors in our congregation, but God knows more than you. He's not just a doctor with a medical practice, by the way. He designed you. He's your maker. He knows exactly how your heart works. And Jesus talks about it in light of money in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, most famous sermon he ever gave. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one or love the other. He'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God. And you cannot, your heart doesn't have the capacity to serve God and money. Dad moment. If you say that you love God, but your life says you love money, they know. And you should too. It's like a heart check to read this passage in Hebrews 13, verse 5 and 6. In an age of consumption, contentment takes incredible courage. Keep your life free from the love of money and command, be content. What in the world is contentment? Do we even know? We talk about 2,500 contaminants at ground zero. Do you know how many temptations there are for consumerism for you? Open up your phone. <laughs> Whatever we talk about here today, uh, it will pop up on Facebook or on whatever. And you can be like, conspiracy theories, the government wants to know if I'm a spy. I don't think the government cares if you're a foreign spy. I think a lot of people just want to sell you stuff. And so I was thinking this week about, you know, this passage is really showing us that money is a trap. How about the rich young ruler? That's an interesting story in the Gospels. Comes to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, be perfect. And he's like, I've done it. He's very self-righteous. And Jesus is like, yeah, I don't think so. How about you go sell all your stuff and then come follow me? Go give the money to the poor. So Jesus wasn't one of those preachers like, give me your money and then you'll be rich. He's like, give the money to the poor and then you can come follow me. He knew that that was an idol for the guy. The guy doesn't follow Jesus because money can be a trap. Money's morally neutral. How you treat it and what's going on in your heart, that's what it reveals. And what happens is that guy leaves, and I thought, I wonder what it'd be like for any of us in North Raleigh, Chapel Hill, Cary, wherever you come from, Rollsville, all kinds of people come from different places here, if we visited the house of the rich young ruler. You think about it. I mean, he lives in the Middle East. He doesn't have conditioned air. How do you even live like this? Right? Like, can you imagine? Like, even just yesterday, it's like 100 degrees. We'd be like, this is terrible. Get the air conditioner fixed. I don't care what it costs. He never even saw a pair of on-cloud shoes. How did he make it? We'd go in and be like, sandals? No, no, Birkenstocks went out a long time ago. Listen, you can have therapeutic shoes that are cool. Think about all the conveniences we have. Think about all the stuff that we have. He didn't have any of that stuff. And he couldn't follow Jesus because of his stuff. Most of us, if we went to the rich young ruler's house, would be like, how do you live like this? We'd have viewed it as poverty. Because everybody who's listening in this room, and if you have access to the internet, you're richer than the rich young ruler. Money's a trap. Don't do that. Be content. And what you find is if you go through the Bible, we don't have time today to go through the Bible. If you go through all of Hebrews chapter 11, you grab all the characters. You grab guys like Joshua. grab guys like Daniel. David, when he fights Goliath, what you find is there's a contentment in their courage. They're content in the Lord, and therefore they act courageous. There's one guy in the Bible who's incredibly bold. His name is Paul. But he oftentimes asks people to pray for his boldness. Pray that I should share the gospel like I should. A lot of people that are Bible scholars think that he was timid naturally. But that supernaturally, God gave him a boldness. And that's why he says things in his letters like, when I come in my presence, you don't think I'm very bold. Because as a presence, he apparently wasn't a very handsome man and, and was a pretty small dude and was not a big boisterous personality. But he'd write these letters and they'd be like, he's so bold in his letters, but not in his speaking. And People believe it was the Holy Spirit that empowered him to be bold. And then you look at his life, look at what, he says some crazy things about contentment. He says one in, in Philippians, context for Philippians, by the way, it's about joy. The whole book is continually commanded to rejoice. He's written from prison. Interesting. Listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11. They've just given him a financial gift while he's in prison. He says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. He's in jail. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret. There's a secret. I've learned, he didn't just always know it, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. 
whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Okay, so first you've got to ask yourself, has he ever lived in plenty? If you read the context in Acts for Philippians, the first person that comes to Christ is a woman named Lydia. Lydia's loaded, just so you know. And Lydia says, if you think I'm legit as a follower of Jesus, come stay at my house. He goes, and that's who takes care of him when he's in Philippi, is a woman named Lydia. So he knows what it is to live large with Lydia. And then you read, and he says things like in 2 Corinthians, he spent a night and a day at sea because he was shipwrecked, floating on debris. That's not living large, just so you know. Now, but prosperity preachers never talk about that verse, by the way. I was reading this week in Acts, and there was a day that he had where there was a storm. He doesn't get shipwrecked in this one, but there was a storm, uh, Acts 27, I think it was, and he, an angel visits him and tells him, everybody will survive, just stay on the boat. Then people start trying to get off the boat. He's like, no, 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 stay on the boat. They stay on the boat. They all survive. When they get to the beach, after going through this terrible storm, it's like the whole chapter, you're reading about this storm that they were in, they make a fire, and a snake jumps out of the fire pit and bites them in the hand. I'm like, that's a terrible, no good, awful day right there. We just made it through. All right, finally, just a fire. Oh, a snake. Oh, but then he's so hardcore. He's like, get out of here. And they think he's a god. And he has to deal with that. And all the, all the nonsense that's taking place there. He knows what it is to be in want. He knows what it is to have plenty. And here he says there's a secret that he's learned of contentment. And I think the way you find out what he's talking about in Philippians is you go through and see all the times that we're commanded to rejoice. It's never in the circumstances. In chapter 4, in verse 4, he says this, rejoice in the Lord always. So it's not rejoice in the always, it's rejoice always, but it's in the Lord. I'll say it again, rejoice. I just read to you verses 11 and 12 about contentment. Verse 10 says this, after getting a gift, he doesn't rejoice in the gift. He doesn't even rejoice in the givers of that gift. He rejoices in the ultimate giver of every good gift. He says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord. And then you go to our passage in Hebrews chapter 13, and it tells you to be content. But did you think it was interesting, the promise that's given next? Be content with what you have. Okay. So there's a warning of the trap of money. Then there's a commandment to be content. But what are we supposed to be content with? With what you have. How do you know what I have? Well, it's not talking about the temporary stuff that we have. It's not talking about our circumstances. It's talking about something eternal. For he has said, here's a promise from God. I will never leave you nor forsake you. How is God's presence the key to our contentment? How is his presence in our lives the key to our contentment? Well, here's one reality of that truth, is that everything that you might be afraid of losing, missing out on opportunity, uh, missing, you know, your family dies, like all, everything most of us are afraid of losing will be taken from you at some point. Everything temporary is going to be gone at some point. But what can never be taken from you is what is eternal. And one of the eternal things in your life is if you're a child of God, no one can ever take that from you. He comes in and dwells you. His presence is with you. That'll never be gone. And our Heavenly Father's presence is important. You know what also that means? That means dads, pause dad moment, your presence is important because you wear the title father and you're teaching your family about presence of an ever-present God. In fact, Secular statistics bear this out. Without having anything to do with the Bible, without having anything to do with generational curses and how you can impact your family for multiple generations, nothing of that. They just know that your presence, dad, stepdad, father figure in the home is vitally important. I'll pop up an infographic here of some of the negative effects of a lack of presence in the home. This is from the National Fatherhood Initiative and stats from various different places you can find when you go to their website. But the the father absence crisis in America means if you don't have a father in the home, you're four times greater risk of poverty when you grow up, two times greater risk of infant mortality, seven times more likely to become pregnant, twice as likely to suffer from obesity, twice as likely to drop out of school. And you can take a picture of that if you want these negative stats. Here's some positive ones of what dad's presence in the home does mean. There are better outcomes in nearly every measure of child well-being, from cognitive de development education to achievement to self-esteem uh, to pro-social behavior and how it impacts the kids' relationships because dad was present. So children who grow up with involved fathers are 39% more likely to earn mostly A's in school, 45% less likely to repeat a grade, 60% less likely to be suspended or expelled from school twice as likely to go to college and find a stable employment after high school, 75% less likely to have teen birth, 80% less likely to spend time in jail, 80% less likely. 
listen to this, in a 26-year-long study, so that's significant, lots of money, lots of time, lots of brain power, 26-long-year study, researchers found that the number one factor in developing empathy in children, and tell me we can't use this in our world more, empathy in our children was a father involvement, was father involvement. Fathers spending regular time alone with their children translated into children who became compassionate adults. This is apart from faith. These are just being present. And you think about God's presence in our lives, like Joshua. I told you, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Why? Because I am with you. New Testament, Matthew, a book that starts with, he is Emmanuel, God with us, talking about his birth, ends with, you've got an incredible commandment. I'm, God's banking on you, sharing his glory and fame with the rest of the world for anybody to become a follower of Jesus. But, lo, I'm with you always. His presence and here we're told this is the key to not become greedy, covetousness, consumers, but to live courageous lives is the presence of God in our lives. When I think of God's presence, there's a passage that sticks out to me. It's in Exodus chapter 33. I was at a baseball game, uh, the Durham Bulls game, uh, this past week. And I don't really love baseball. Pastor Dave invited me to come, and his small group was going to be there. There were literally 100 people there. Dave's got a pretty big small group. And uh, our staff was there, and I was like, I like people, and we eat hot dogs and hang out for a little bit, and that'll be fun. And so I went, and one of the things that I, I was struck with is how many new people there are to our church, but not just our church, our church staff even. And so I said uh, one or two times to different folks, I was like, oh, it's like the story from the early days of our church, and people were like, oh, I don't know that story, tell me. So those of you who've been around for a long time, I'm going to start sharing some stories y'all have heard before, just bear with me. Not because I've run out of stories. I mean, I can always burn a deck down or something for an illustration. Um, what, the reason is because they're stories that shape our culture and they impact who we are. And Exodus chapter 33 is a significant passage in the story of our church because my wife and I, 17 years ago, we're sitting in our living room in Dallas, Texas and praying about where do you want us to go, Lord? What do you want us to do? We were looking at Greece. We were looking at California. Raleigh was kind of on the radar. We laid a map out in the living room and we started praying, God, where do you want us to go? What do you want us to do? My wife comes out of our bedroom and she says, have you read Exodus 33? And I'm thinking, I've read the Bible, but I don't know, remember the Exodus 30. What happened, honey? Like, I don't know, just all of it by heart. And so she started to tell me, in case you're like, I was at that moment, Exodus 33 comes after Exodus 32. Crazy, huh? Isn't that wild like that? Uh, Exodus 32 is the golden calf story where Moses is up on a mountain and he's with God for a long time. 40 days. And then uh, when he comes down, not only do the people build a golden calf and worship and say, that's the God who led us through the Red Sea. It didn't exist when he went through the Red Sea. Whatever. The logic of it doesn't make sense. But Aaron, his brother, is not complicit. He's responsible for this happening. He made the calf. And then he says, well, these people gave me this medal, and then I, this happened. He's a liar. And so what ends up happening there is you've got to think, hold on. Moses, when he got called by God, said, I don't know how to talk. So what are we going to do, Lord? I made your mouth. And he's like, yeah, well, I need, like, he didn't want to go by himself. And so he sends Aaron to be the mouthpiece. Now, Aaron's, he's at best compromised at this moment. Think about how lonely Moses feels in this moment. And then God brought his wrath. And not 3,000 people like 9-11, which shook our country in the shaken kingdom, God's wrath poured out on those people, killed 23,000 people. That's a lot of people. And God says he's going to wipe out all the people. And then Moses intercedes and says, these are your people. You're going to wipe out your people? It reminds God of his own promises. And then God said, you go into the land. I can't be around these people. I'll destroy all of them. They're a stiff-necked people. And then Moses says, who's going to go? I don't want to go without you. Exodus chapter 33 and verse 12, he says, who are you gonna, who, who's going to be in the land? And then I, like for us when we were planting the church, when God finally did call us to Raleigh, by the way, there weren't any people here waiting for us. We weren't sent out by another church. There was nobody that was like, hey, we got a core group and they just want to do church this way rather than the way we're doing it, so why don't you take them from us? And none of that stuff. Like we literally were like, we're, we're going to go and we want to just have a church that makes a really big deal about Jesus and we'll see who's drawn to that. And in fact, this funny story I tell about my brother-in-law every once in a while, they're members of our church now because they saw the light, but what ended up happening uh, before that was when we, we were still living in Texas, my brother-in-law actually came and visited, and he was one of the few people that we even knew that lived in the Raleigh-Durham area. He sat down with us and he said, hey, I just want you to know we love you, praying for you, we'll financially support the church, but we're not going to come because we already have a church. And I was like, 
afterwards to Shanna, we're not very good at this. <laughs> we didn't even ask them to come and they told us they weren't coming. Like, what? <laughs> like, you can't get much worse batting average than I didn't even step up to the plate and I already struck out. Like, that's bad news. And so we didn't have any people. And then what Moses says next was so impactful. In Exodus chapter 33 and verses 15 through 17, he tells the Lord why it's so important to have his presence. He says in verse 15, this is Moses to the Lord, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. We don't want to go without you. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Bible commentator that's helped me understand Exodus 33 better is a guy named D.A. Carson. He says this. It's pretty direct and clear. Listen. <laughs> no. Okay. Listen. All right. Uh, the people of God are characterized by the presence of God or else they're indistinguishable from everybody else on the face of the earth. His presence is pretty important. So how do you know if his presence is evident in your life? Well, do you know what we see in the New Testament? We don't have time to unpack this, but I've preached whole messages on this before. What you behold, you become. Moses is a great example of this. When he goes up on the mountain, he comes down with a glowing face. The New Testament commentates on this because what you behold, you become. Here's a passage for you to look at because it's real interesting when you look at the disciples in the Gospels and they're such cowards and then you look at them in the book of Acts and they've got incredible courage. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are going to the temple. They tell this guy, hey, we don't have any money. He's begging for money. He goes, well, we got Jesus. The guy's healed. Then the Supreme Court of their day, which is anti-Jesus, tells them, quit preaching in the name of Jesus. But the Bible gives us a look at the inter-sanctum of the Supreme Court of that day. And what they said about these men is pretty interesting. Acts chapter 4 and verse 13, it says, now when they, this is the Supreme Court, Sanhedrin then, uh, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. Whoa, hold up. How many times have you seen a guy and thought, eh, pretty regular dude. Wow. Look what it says. They perceived they were common men, they were uneducated men, they were astonished, and here's why. They recognized they had been with Jesus. Dads, do your kids see that? Courageous living comes from a contented life. A contented life only comes when you're connected to Jesus Christ for life change. That's not just salvation. That's the whole journey. Are you connected? Contentment comes from your communion with Christ. Connection to Jesus is where contentment in life comes from. A courageous living overflows from that contentedness that you have. That no matter what happens to me, Nobody can take this. I've got Jesus. Not only that, it comes from ultimate freedom. Courageous living overflows from a life of ultimate freedom. Go back to our passage, verse 5. Keep your life free, you might underline that word, from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently, in courageous language, say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. Fear what? Fear of missing out? Fear of loss? Nope, not those fears. Fear what man can do to me. You're free from the love of money and free from fear, then the fear of man, then you can really live a courageous life. See, everybody wants freedom. Everybody wants political freedom. Everybody wants economic freedom. Everybody wants freedom to make their own choices. But you know what's crazy is when you have the kind of freedom that's talked about here, this is your identity in Christ, by the way. This is your position. When you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you're now free to be who God designed you to be. Apart from Christ, you can never experience freedom. Because the Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 1 that you were created for the glory of God. But apart from Christ, you're not free to do that because everything you do is sin. Pausing to let that sink in because I know some of you will disagree with that. That's because you can't live for Christ when your life is all about you. Even when you do good things, they're about you. They're not about the Lord. And so everything is sin apart from Christ. But once you come to Christ, now you're free to be who you were designed to be. And then we hear people in our age, which, by the way, some of the highest values, individualism, authenticity. But they're living in darkness, according to the Bible. And so when you think you're being authentic and your desires are all sinful, obviously you go to sin. And then you're taught, because of a culture of individualism, to be self-sufficient, that you are your own judge, that you are the authority, that you are the core. 
People talking to you about experiencing freedom when you know real freedom is like a heroin addict coming to you and telling you they're free. When you know real freedom in Christ, somebody comes to you and they'll even excuse their sin. Sometimes it's sexual perversion. Sometimes it's the way they relate, how they cheated on their taxes, why they gossip about people, all kinds of stuff. And you know they're in bondage to sin. The Bible says that when we're in sin, we're slaves to sin. And so you know they're in bondage. But then they say, no, this is freedom. I'm, fr- I'm being my authentic self. And it's like, it's like a heroin addict coming and saying, I feel so good when I'm high. It's like, you believe that. Part of what you're saying is true, but you're in bondage. Jesus came to set us free. In fact, he preaches a sermon in his hometown. He pulls out the scroll of Isaiah. He preaches from Isaiah 61. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty. It's another word for freedom. Liberty to the captives and set recovery of the sight to the blind. To set at liberty, there's that freedom word again, those who are oppressed. And so Jesus heals blind eyes. He actually opens, physically opens blind eyes, but what he does even more often is he opens people's eyes to their sin. There's a crazy story in John chapter 9 where there's a man who's been born blind and Jesus heals him. If you read the rest of that story, you get to the end of chapter 9 and the religious leaders who can physically see go, are we blind too? And Jesus is going, yep. Full context, John chapter 10 is that shepherding passage I mentioned to you. My sheep hear my voice. They know when I'm speaking to them. In chapter 8, He's talked to his disciples, and he said, So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Then he says, religious leaders, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. This is a book that started off, John chapter 1, verse 12. Whoever's believed on Jesus Christ, he's given the right to be called children of God. Identity. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That is your identity in Christ. That's incredible. But do you know what the problem is? Is Some of you trust Christ, and then you go back to bondage. And it's like you've got eternity set, but now I'm going to live like I'm in bondage. So you're living contrary to your identity, which is spiritual immaturity, by the way. And so you see passages of Scripture like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, amazing verses of salvation. We're saying, by grace, through faith, it's a gift of God, not of your works. That's awesome. All the pressure's off you. But then we skip verse 10. For, in light of that, because of that, therefore, for, so, because, since, there's a lot of English words, it's all saying, because of what we just said, you are God's workmanship. That's a Greek word, poiema, which means work of art. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for you before the beginning of time, that you would walk, but you have to walk in them. Hmm. John chapter 10, right after that, John chapter 9, when they said, Aren't we blind? Are we blind too? Then he tells them, I've come that you could have abundant life. But you know what else he says? Here's the problem the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I read a story last week, a crazy story about art theft, a 31 year mystery that's maybe solved. There was this couple, they were school teachers. So, um, school teachers, we love you. We know that you don't make as much money as you should make. Uh, they lived pretty lavish lifestyles when they died. They had uh, over a million dollars in the bank, and they had a painting that was hanging in their bedroom in a way that you could never see it unless you lived in the home. Because whenever you opened the bedroom door, it was behind the bedroom door. When you closed the bedroom door, you could see the painting. The painting was worth $160 million. It had been stolen 31 years earlier. And they didn't know who did it. Um, this was before the museum had all surveillance cameras everywhere. And what happened was a young couple had come in, about 31 years younger than this couple, had come in and distracted the security guard. And then one of them went alone with the painting. And when they came back, it had been cut out of the frame. There were no fingerprints or video evidence of what had taken place. So they did some sketches based on what the security guard said that resembled this couple 31 years earlier. They don't know if they did it. But they had the painting hanging in their bedroom in a way and only they could see it. If you had a $160 million painting, why would you hide it? Hmm. For their own enjoyment, maybe? I don't know. I don't know. It seems like they've been robbed. There was an intention of the author of that painting for it to be enjoyed. God wants to spread his fame through your life. Some of you are being robbed because your identity has been taken from you because you're in bondage to sin and you're in bondage to other things. I was listening to Pastor Alex Hamaya 
Some of you know him. He came to our church and preached this past summer. Lord willing, he's going to be back in July. I was listening to him preach in Daniel. Daniel's a great book. Um, talks about standing for your faith and boldness. He was preaching a message, if you want to look it up and watch the whole thing, uh, called Taking a Stand, Standing Tall in a Bow-Down Culture. And in it, he talks about some characters you guys know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, that's how you know them. Did you know they actually have Hebrew names? Because they don't talk about their Hebrew names very much in Sunday school. Uh, their Hebrew names are all in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 6. Uh, if you've got a Bible, you can look that up. We'll put it up on the screen. But Daniel 1, 6 says this. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those are the Hebrew names. And what's happened is they're in Babylonian captivity. God's using a wicked kingdom to judge his people, Israel. And so they're going to spend 70 years in exile. These guys are part of that deal. Nebuchadnezzar is a smart guy. And he knows how to hold somebody in captivity, and he knows psychological warfare. These men, their names, by the way, Daniel uh, means God is my judge. That's his Hebrew name. And in the Old Testament, your name was not only your identity, it was your destiny. Names were important. Uh, Hananiah that we read there, beloved of the Lord. Mashael, who is as God. Hmm. Azariah, the Lord is my help. It goes right with our passage today. And look at Daniel 1.7, the next verse. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Nebuchadnezzar would have commanded this. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Amishael, he called Meshach. Azariah, he called Abednego. Here's the meaning of those names, Babylonian names. Belteshazzar, Prince of Bel. Wait, but I thought his name was God as my judge. Mm -hmm. Shadrach, illuminated by the sun god, not beloved of the Lord. Meshach, who is like unto moon god. Mishael was who is as God. Abednego, servant of Nego, a shining fire. <laughs> what Pastor Hamaya did a great job of going on to explain to his congregation is that Nebuchadnezzar knew that every time those men heard that, those names, they would hear, you have been defeated. And they would take that on as an identity. Some of you remember the story of Elizabeth Smart. She was kidnapped from her home by a wanderer and his wife and was uh, held in bondage for nine months. Those of you who don't know the story, you can look it up. What many people don't know is that three months into her captivity, she was actually in person approached by a police officer. She was wearing a covering on her face uh, because her kidnapper required her to do that. And the police officer actually asked her face to face while the kidnapper was in the restroom, I'm looking for a girl named Elizabeth Smart. Have you ever seen her picture? She didn't respond. She was frozen in fear. He came back out and explained that Elizabeth and his wife wear these, and it's a religious requirement, they can't take their mask off. And he left. Even when she was rescued nine months later, when they first asked her her name and they knew she was Elizabeth Smart, she used a different name. Augustine was the name that she used because that was her captor told her her name was now. She didn't even know her own identity. She was in bondage because of fear. That's why. It's an old trick. It's been going on for a long time. It's satanic. You have an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. Jesus came you could have abundant life. If you've received that life, he wants you to walk in that life. And part of that is living in your identity. We could do a whole series on that you are a child of God, what it is to be a son of the king, a daughter of the king, what it is to have access to every spiritual blessing. But here, it's your freedom Freedom from the fear of man. Freedom from the love of money. That is you. So how do you experience that? He's already told us. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Throw off everything and sin. Everything that entangles. Keep your eyes on, not your circumstances, not this world, the one who's ever present with you. The one who gave you by grace through faith, your faith. The author, that's the beginner of your faith. The perfecter, the one who's still working it out. Your faith, Jesus Christ, men. Dads, can you even imagine what it would look like if we would reject the temptation of all this consumption, of climbing the corporate ladder, of finding our identity in this world, and found it in Christ, and lived as truly connected, it wasn't just a slogan in our church, connected to Jesus Christ for life change, what a difference that would make. Generational curses being broken. Freedom being, that you would be free in Christ. Here's what I want to do as we end the service today. If you're a father, I just want to ask you to stand up and come on up here. And I'm not going to make you say anything, do anything. I want to pray for you. And so we can do that right now. You can come on up here if you're a father. I want, and those of you who are not fathers, I just want you to see who the dads are in our church because what you're looking at, by the way, are influencers 
Uh, secular studies show that. The Bible is real clear about that. Um, and if you want to come up on stage, you can. If there's not enough room down here, if you want to stand down here, that's fine. I'm just going to pray for you. I'm going to pray a vision prayer over you. A prayer of freedom. Uh, uh, yeah, you can come up here. Yeah. No, no, get out of here. Yeah, you can come up here. I'm glad you're up here. I'm going to make you pray. You can come up here. Yeah, come up here. We love you. You can get them on camera. See where our dads are. Impacting kids that are in bridge kids, and some of you got adult kids, and all kinds of different things here. So you guys are influential. Um, like I said, you don't have to be just like one or two. You guys come up on the stage. And church, one of the things that we've done as a church is when we pray for people, um, we're setting them apart, ordaining them. They've got a unique ministry here as fathers, is that we put our hands out, like you're putting hands on them. And so I'm just ask our church to do that. If you're at home, you're watching this. If you're a dad, you just stand up. If you're in a coffee shop, stand up. If you're not a father, you can just maybe put your hands on it. See some of these men that are here. And the camera doesn't have to be on me while I pray. By the way, you watch it online. You can show who some of these dads are. And you guys can come up here. And there's not a lot of room, but come on up here. Let's pray for our dads. Let's pray that what we preached about today will be true. Let's pray. You know, they've got a huge responsibility, Ephesians 6, 4, and they're bearing the title of our Heavenly Father, and so let's pray for them. Father, we come before you with these men, none of them perfect. All of us have made mistakes. I've said things to my kids I wish I hadn't said, lost my temper, been harsh, not said things I should have said. Father, will you forgive me? Will you forgive these men for whatever dumb stuff that they've done? But I pray for them. I pray that moving forward, they would be men of faith. If there's any man that's sitting up here right now that doesn't know your son Jesus the Savior, I pray you'd save them today. I pray for each man that's here. I pray for a, a new level of freedom they've never walked in before. I pray they'd be able to throw off something today, throw off a sin, throw off a thought process, throw off whatever it is that would be hindering them from being connected to you, that they would walk more freely with you today than they've ever walked before in their lives. I pray for our church to be different as a result of them becoming new and changed men. I thank you for the ones that love you and that have loved you for years, that have impacted us. And Father, I, we don't want to overlook that, but I pray that the days ahead would be greater than the days in the past. I pray as we walk into a world that will be more and more antagonistic to your son Jesus Christ, that we would stand out more and more as followers of your son Jesus Christ. If it ever does cost us money to follow your son Jesus, I pray that we would be free from the love of money. If it ever costs us our lives, I pray we'd be free from the love of this world, that we'd be people that live for a different world, that live for your son, Jesus. Thank you for sending him to die for us. Thank you for the freedom that you give. I pray that these men, each one of them, in their own expression, they all have their own race to run. They would know they're not alone, but they would run freely for you and have their eyes on you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.